Alrighty everyone, welcome back to another episode of Monday Madness. Last time I saw you it was November, but now it is Monday, December the 7th. We will be trying to push out lots of content coming soon, that way you will have plenty of things to listen to during the holidays. Traveling to see family? Put on an episode of the Periodical Podcast. Need a break from those pesky in-laws? Well, step out back and sip on some eggnog spiked with a little bit of holiday cheer and take 10 minutes to visit a Monday Madness episode. We've been learning new things all year, so there's no reason to stop now. Anywho, I, I know you didn't come to listen to our scheduling release for the holidays. You came here for that fresh oil and gas information, so it is high time we jump right in, starting off like we do every week with those statistics. So, WTI, I don't know if you've been keeping your eyes on pricing lately, but you might want to take a peek, as WTI spent most of last week at $45 and is sitting at $46.13 as I record this. At the beginning of November, we were sitting at $37, so this is fantastic. Even through all the strange politics and OPEC Plus meetings, the price continues to climb, so let's hope whatever handful of factors are at play keep applying that upward pressure through the end of this hectic year. Not only are prices doing well, but the US rig count is up 3 for the week. This brings us to a total of 323 rigs, which is only down 476 for the year. I know I say only, but 476 isn't as bad as the count was going much earlier this year. Slow and steady wins the race, I suppose. Digging a little deeper into the data, we saw the biggest increase in the Permian with a 3-rig gain, but, you know, they have over 100 rigs, that's not too much of a change. What did catch my eye, however, was how the DJ Niobrara area gained 2 rigs, bringing it from 4 to 6 total rigs. A 50% increase ain't nothing to sneeze at, so I wonder who that activity is coming from. Either way, we wish them well. Lastly, let's touch on those inventories. We had a good run with pricing and rig count this week, but not every week can be stellar in all the categories. The EIA released its report for the week ending on November 27th, showing that there was a 700,000 barrel draw, which is good. Unfortunately, the API's report for the week ending on the first of the month shows a 600,000 barrel build. So no huge change and it evens out over the difference of those few days, but certainly much closer in reporting than it was last week. Neither good nor bad here, so overall, a good past week or so for oil and gas. Now, on to our stories for the week. First up, benchmarks, specifically the Brent benchmark. In times long gone, the Brent oil field in the North Sea was producing a massive amount of oil that was exported all over the world. In order to better track the commodity pricing, the Brent benchmark was introduced. Very similar to the way WTI oil is priced today, but more applicable to the North Sea area in Europe. Soon, more and more oil was being produced from different fields in and around that North Sea area at different pricing, and things began to get a little confusing. The 40s, Ecofisk, Troll, Osberg fields, they were all contributing to exports extracted from the North Sea region, and some basins like the East Shetland, just off the coast of Scotland, were beginning to dwindle in production. In order to normalize the pricing of all the oil extracted and account for the decreasing volumes by region, S&P Platts decided to start reporting prices in the dated Brent format in the late 1980s. That way, all of the light North Sea oil could be combined into a basket price to make trading out of the region a bit easier as pricing would be reflected by this one number. You can think of it the same way as uh, the OPEC basket. This strategy worked for years, but less and less oil is produced from that North Sea area as volumes continue to shrink even with the advancements in technology. This means that the prices for most traded barrels of oil are set with reference to a rapidly shrinking North Sea market, and COVID certainly hasn't helped the cause. S&P's solution? Well, maybe they can include WTI and Brent pricing. Yeah, you heard me right, and I think it would help if we brought our history lesson back home to the good old US of A. 
The US didn't do a whole lot of exporting in the past as a response to the OPEC oil embargo in the early 70s. That is a whole different topic that we could hash out for ages, but Dr. Charles Kohlhaas actually breaks that down wonderfully in a legacy podcast that we have just uploaded to the website. It's a little three-part series. You can search legacy on rarepetro.com, listen to that first part, and it'll get you all learned up about that time from a first-hand retelling. Just know that the U.S. banned exporting for 40 years after that as a response. In 2015, however, fracking technology enabled a ton of producers to pull oil from the Permian, amongst other basins, and the ban was lifted. More and more oil was being produced, and the U.S. found itself in a surplus. Now that the ban was lifted, it could be sold to other countries. By 2016, the U.S. was exporting around half a million barrels a day. From 2019 to 2020, that average was up to 3 million barrels of oil a day. The U.S. is growing its presence in the market and exporting lots of oil. This is why S&P Platts is consulting market participants to see if combining WTI with Brent would be favorable for price reporting. Since it's just an idea at this point, the details are still fuzzy. Will WTI still exist on its own, or will it be swallowed by dated Brent? How will this affect pricing? I mean, we simply don't know yet. Either way, S&P Platts plans to conclude the review by February of 2021. If participants are in favor, we would likely see some big changes implemented in Q1 of 2022, whether that is a combined WTI and Brent benchmark or an entirely new one altogether. Now, I know that was a lot, but I really just wanted to highlight how the U.S. is becoming a larger market player and pricing benchmarks may be overhauled in the next year or two. The history may not have been necessary to explain those topics, but hopefully you learned a little something new and why this is being considered. Next up, you've probably heard a little buzz in the news about Exxon and a potential proxy fight. When I read through the articles, I was a bit confused myself, so I'll do my best to walk through it in a way that's pretty easy to follow. To set the scene, we first look at Exxon's quarterly reports. If you hadn't heard, Exxon reported its third quarterly loss in a row for the first time ever, and while everyday people like you and me might just be mostly unaffected by this information, investors with hundreds of millions of dollars wrapped up in Exxon are hopping mad. As losses have now totaled $2.37 billion, Exxon is kind of like that ex he once had who promises to change and says it can make things better. And the way it plans to do that is writing down some of the gas assets to better reflect the market, cut 30% of its spending plan for the next year, and slowly reduce its workforce by 14,000 people. Yeesh. Tough times require tough solutions, I suppose. Even so, investors are still not pleased and they want more, as they do have tons of money wrapped up in the company and its value continues to decrease as Exxon continues to bleed money. In steps engine number one an investment firm launched last week by two hedge fund industry veterans. The goal? Get current shareholders to back Engine No. 1 in a call for change. The letter from Engine No. 1 to Exxon calls for four primary changes. Number 1. Add independent directors with diversified energy industry experience. Now, they suggested a few people, but basically, this does make sense as many companies are being urged to take this stance to become an energy company rather than just pigeonholed to oil and gas. So the people that engine number one proposes do have experience in wind energy, uh, refineries abroad, basically a good mix. We're not cutting out oil. That's not what they're calling for. They just want to get new people on the board, new directors. Number two, they want to reduce capital expenditures, particularly on projects that are unlikely to break even with sustained low oil and gas prices. Again, this also makes sense, although it is unclear how much more money Exxon needs to divert from its oil and gas projects if it's already going to do it, especially if the market 
could recover by mid-2021 to early 2022. So that one, a little bit up in the air. Number three, formulate a plan to invest in growth areas such as renewable energies. Again, this aligns with number one in asking Exxon to diversify itself in hopes that it is, well, not killed in the energy transition as we've seen so many companies struggling this year claim bankruptcy. Lastly, number four, realign management incentives. Now, I'm no business major, but to me, the way I interpreted this seems like a jab at how much money the higher-ups are taking in a time where the company may be down. Who knows? Like, like I said, that's just the way I interpreted it, and I'm not even sure what the bonuses or salaries are at this time, although I do hope it wouldn't be too high if they plan to lay off 14,000 people. Since Engine Number 1 only owns $40 million in company stock, it really needs help from larger investors to get its point across. That's why Engine Number 1 is an activist investor firm. It has an agenda to push, and it wants the other investors to back it. So far, things are going swimmingly for Engine Number 1, as pension fund California State Teachers Retirement System has pledged its support, and they own roughly $300 million in stock. The next hurdle is getting the three largest investors involved, those being Vanguard Group, BlackRock, and State Street, some names I'm sure you're familiar with at this point. Although Exxon has beaten back activist investors in the past, BlackRock and State Street are members of an investor group which is pressing the largest greenhouse gas emitters to take action on climate change, which means it is not unlikely that they will back engine number one if that is their primary incentive. Either way, some big changes could be coming for Exxon in the upcoming quarter one if investors are upset enough to ask for it. Phew, I know that was only two stories to go off of today, but we really dove deep, and I think we have reached our time limit. Like I said, plenty of content to consume in the next coming weeks, so be sure to subscribe to the Rare Petro Network in order to make the most of this downturn, learn a whole lot more, and come back stronger. We at Rare Petro have looked at this year as an opportunity to grow, and we are thankful for those who have joined us. Happy December, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody.